Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Things are just not going well for the Cubs right now. Something is rotten in the state of Illinois when it comes to baseball. That's Jesse Agler the radio voice of the San Diego Padres. I live in San Diego, that's where the Old Globe is, and I love listening to Padres games on the radio. Agler does a regular bit with the big sports radio show here, Ben and Woods. They call it the Incorporator, and the idea is that Agler has to incorporate some preposterously obscure vocabulary word into his play-by-play, and then the hosts grade him. Agler's really good at it. I once heard him slip the word decorticate into a game and make it sound completely natural. Anyway, last summer they challenged Agler to incorporate references to Shakespeare into his call when the Padres played the Chicago Cubs. Agler threw a perfect game. First, he gave a little nod toward Romeo and Juliet. Grisham sends that one out to right field. Hayward fighting the garish sun a little bit. He'll make the catch. That, oh my God, is the host of the show marveling at Agler's skill. He did it again when Agler snuck the title of a Shakespeare play in. He was talking about the Cubs' bad luck against the Yankees. It was a tough weekend for the Cubs in the Bronx. Kind of a comedy of errors. Oh my God. Now, I'm a professional Shakespeare guy, and I got such a kick out of all this that I called into the show the next morning. Gentlemen, we got a... Uh... Got a special guest on the phone right now. Is it Jesse Agler? No, it's is not it, Jesse is Agler. It, is it Bill Shakespeare? Close. Closer, <laughs> I should say. It's Mike Shakespeare, <laughs> long-lost relative. It's uh, Barry, okay. who works at the Old Globe Theater oh. here in San Diego, and he knows his Shakespeare. All right, Barry, how did, uh, how did Jesse Agler do in his Shakespearean challenge on The Incorporator yesterday? And good morning. Good morning to you guys. Well, here's a Hamlet line for you. A hit a very palpable hit. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been an easy one for Jesse to work in. Piece of cake. I'm Barry Edelstein, and I run the Old Globe, one of the country's leading Shakespeare theaters. And this is Where There's a Will, Finding Shakespeare, from the Globe and Pushkin Industries. Our show discovers Shakespeare in all sorts of unexpected places and asks what he's doing there and what his presence means about him and about us. 
We did an episode of Where There's a Will on the way presidents of the United States have quoted Shakespeare, read him, and thought about him. We've seen what Shakespeare means to the lives of people who are incarcerated, and to teens, and to autistic kids and their families. We've discovered Shakespeare in people's gender identities and in the process of how American identity is formed. In this episode, I want to do something a little different. I want to find out a little more about how Shakespeare wends his way into our everyday lives. And I want to hear about how and why regular people turn to him to borrow some words when their own seem like they're not enough. This is a subject I've thought a lot about. My friends know that I know my Shakespeare, so for years and years they've reached out to me when they've had some important moment in their lives and needed some special language for the occasion. Hey, Barry, I have to give a toast at a wedding. Got any Shakespeare? Hey, Barry, my niece is graduating college. Got any Shakespeare? I ended up answering these questions so many times that I had enough material for a book. It's called Bardisms, Shakespeare for All Occasions, and it's kind of a user's guide to quoting Shakespeare in moments big and small. But the book turned out to be less about the few dozen quotations I could recommend and more about the knack this playwright has for lending us exactly the right thing to say on any enormous life moment we might be dealing with. But don't take my word for it. Listen to some real-world examples. Here's Shakespeare on the occasion of losing someone you loved. And he shall die. Take him and cut him out in little stars. And he shall make the face of heaven so fine that all the world will be in love with night and pay no worship to the garish sun. That's Robert Kennedy, of course, enlisting Shakespeare's help in a famous and very moving eulogy for his late brother. And by the way, that garish son is the same one that gave Jason Hayward so much trouble at Wrigley Field. Here's another. As Shakespeare says of the earlier Queen Elizabeth, she was a pattern to all princes living. That's King Charles III quoting the play King Henry VIII to sum up the life of his extraordinary mother, Queen Elizabeth II. King Charles also quoted Shakespeare in his first speech to the nation as monarch and he quoted him pretty much nonstop when he was Prince of Wales. Unsurprising, I suppose. After all, Shakespeare is the royal family's official historian. But let's leave kings and senators aside. Regular folks quote Shakespeare at their big moments, too. A Nebraska schoolteacher named Mark Gudgel ran for mayor of Omaha in 2021, and campaigning for the Democratic nomination, he turned to old Will. Here's a local TV news story about him. Gudgel says he's candid, often using a quote from Shakespeare that he teaches to his students. One that comes from Othello that I think describes me really well is that I wear my heart on my sleeve. You don't ever wonder where I stand on something. I'm open and honest about it. Sadly, Gudgel lost the election. I spoke to him, and he told me his campaign staff was dead set against him quoting Shakespeare out on the trail. They thought it made him seem like an elitist. But if it's some elitist sin to quote Shakespeare a lot, then, if I may quote Shakespeare, I am the most offending soul alive. I love using Shakespeare's language to enhance my own powers of expression. I'll turn to him again. I have been to a great feast of languages and stolen the scraps. I find it just delightful to watch him pop up in some context that's surprising, that's sweet, that's endearing that's maybe even bonkers. 
So I wanted to see if I could be of help to some people looking for Shakespeare to enhance an important moment in their lives. I'm a stage director by profession, and I spend a lot of time working with actors on Shakespeare. I teach Shakespearean acting too, and I wrote a textbook on the subject called Thinking Shakespeare. I do a live version of it where I show audiences how professional actors and directors bring Shakespeare's language to life on stage. That's why I'm calling this episode of Where There's a Will, Thinking Shakespeare Live. I want to do a little mini version of that work with some regular people who've had a little touch of William in their lives. I asked around San Diego and found two wonderful folks who were all about it. I'll coach them for their Shakespearean debut after a short break. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event 
and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there. A few months ago, the Old Globe sent out an email asking San Diego if anyone was looking to quote some Shakespeare on a special occasion. And so I thought, well, that'll be fun. Let me just submit. (laughs) What have I got to lose? That's Lorena Santana. I was born in Tijuana. My father was a physician in Tijuana and was from the state of Jalisco. My dad was very passionate about Shakespeare. He would talk about how Shakespeare was able to understand all the human emotions and write about them. And so I grew up hearing this, and I also love Shakespeare. Jonathan Mello also responded to the Globe's email. I am a longtime union organizer and part-time theater fanatic. And what shape does that theater fanaticism take? Um, at this point in my life, it takes a few. Of course, reading and, and seeing every play that I can possibly find time and money to see, and on occasion struggling to, to write as well. You're a playwright. That's, yes. <laughs> yes, you are. Say it loud and proud. I'm a playwright. <laughs> All right. That's, that's fantastic. I spoke with Jonathan on a special day. Happy birthday. Thanks. It was yesterday. I met some union organizers, of course, for dinner. That's great. That's we only fantastic. Ate. We didn't organize the restaurant. Didn't organize the restaurant? No. I shunned the. <laughs> Jonathan told me why he responded to the Globe's email. It so happens that my truly wonderful life partner, Melissa, is having a special turnaround the sun next year. And I thought it would be nice to not only read some Shakespeare, but do it in such a way where I didn't sound like a complete goofball. So Melissa's birthday is coming up and you're going to read some, you want to read some Shakespeare. I want to, and I want to do it well enough good. The passage Jonathan chose for Melissa is not from one of Shakespeare's plays. It's one of his poems instead, Sonnet 18. It's pretty famous. It starts, Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? As it happens, Lorena chose a sonnet too. And so I submitted this piece, uh, Sonnet 116. Sonnet 116 is one of Shakespeare's best-known poems. It's the one that begins, Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. And because it's about marriage, it's read a lot at weddings. People also really cherish it for a vision of love that endures. I think the sonnet is just a beautiful message about love. And I have recited, I actually recently recited it for my boyfriend's parents who had their 60th wedding anniversary. Oh, my. And we were sitting at the dinner table, and I just recited it for them. Really? Oh, they must have loved that. I think they were just taken aback. (laughs) Everybody was just a little bit, like, shocked. Uh, Shocked how? In the sense that who pulls out a sonnet out of their back pocket and starts reciting it at the dinner table? (laughs) You haven't spent a lot of time at my family dinners. I'm sure. (laughs) Please invite (laughs) me over for dinner. Two folks in San Diego... 
two Shakespearean sonnets. Let me take a moment to talk about what those poems are. Most of all, Shakespeare's sonnets are remarkable pieces of writing. There are 154 of them, first published together in 1609. Shakespeare had been writing poetry since the early 1590s, before he'd had even one play produced. But by 1609, he was already famous, the author of beloved masterpieces of the London stage, Hamlet, Romeo and Juliet, Henry V, and there's some evidence that perhaps he didn't really want these sonnets published, because they're very personal. When you read all 154 in order, you get a story. It centers on a middle-aged male poet, very likely named Will, because he can't stop punning on that word. He gets involved in the life of a charismatic, aristocratic, and extremely beautiful young man and develops a romantic attachment to him. But he's conflicted about his feelings, not least because the young man is having affairs all over town. A rival poet appears, who's also obsessed with this young man. And then a woman arrives, the so-called dark lady of the sonnets because of her dark hair and dark eyes, and our middle-aged poet turns his attention toward her. Along the way, some of the poems detour from this group of people to meditate on larger themes about love in the abstract, about time, art, and, you know, the meaning of life. The sonnets are celebrated for how moving and powerful they are, but they're also fascinating for a whole other reason. They seem to reveal little hints about who Shakespeare was. For 400 years, there have been literary parlor games trying to identify the handsome young man, trying to match the rival poet to one of Shakespeare's contemporaries, trying to name the dark lady. There's no way to know who any of them were, of course, or even if they existed at all as anything more than inventions of Shakespeare's imagination. And yet, the sonnets do give us a glimpse of Shakespeare the individual, in ways that the plays don't, and they seem to reveal aspects of his personality and his sexuality and his humor and the nature of his heart. I shared all this information with Lorena and Jonathan. Wow. What do you think about that? I mean, it's just so, so many possibilities. All 154 of the sonnets have the same form. They're written in iambic pentameter, or lines of ten syllables. They have 14 lines, organized in three groups of four called quatrains, that's 12, and then a couplet of two lines for 14. There's a complicated rhyme scheme, and in almost all of the poems, the story they're telling goes in one direction until almost the very end when it makes a turn in another direction that's surprising or even contradictory. All of this is to say that, as I told Jonathan, these little poems have a lot going on in them. Okay, there you go. That's a minute and a half on the form and history of Shakespeare's sonnets. A master class in less than two minutes, Barry. There you go. There you go. I don't know about a master class, but a quick drink out of the fire hose in less than two minutes. I propose to Lorena and Jonathan that we dig into the words of their sonnets, pick them apart, figure out what makes them tick, and then put them back together again in beautiful, expressive form. Step one, give the poems a first read. Sonnet 116 first, Lorena. Oh, and by the way, you can follow along if you'd like. We've placed sonnets 18 and 116 in the show notes for this episode. Okay, you ready to give it a go? Sure. All right, go ahead. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. 
Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is ne'er shaken. It is a star to every wandering bark whose words unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not, but bears it out. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. Fantastic, Lorena. That was just beautiful. Wonderful. And now Jonathan's turn. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May. And summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines. And often in his gold complexion dimmed. And every fair from fair sometime declines. By chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal shall not fade. But thy eternal summer shall not fade. Nor lose possession of that fair thou owest. Nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. Spectacular, man! Great. You're gonna. Should be. You're gonna. You're gonna move Melissa deeply. She's Uh, gonna better yet, Barry. (laughs) Well. You're gonna, she's she's going to love it. That's my prediction. <laughs> Next, understand exactly what you're saying. Every Shakespearean actor has to make sure they know what the words mean, what the thoughts in the lines are trying to express. Jonathan's Sonnet 18 is about a poet trying to find the best way to write about the person he loves. Okay, so let's do this. Let's go through and make sure we understand what's being said, yeah? Yeah. All right. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? This question, you have to ask a question. You've just compared her to a summer's day on your piece of paper, right? Melissa reminds me of July 12th. And you read it and you go, ah, is that what I'm going to do? Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? And the answer is, well, there's a problem doing that. Why? Because thou art more lovely and more temperate, you're better looking than a summer's day. And you're more temperate, you're more balanced, right? Summer days are hot, or there's a storm in summer's days, right? But you're not like that. You're more beautiful than a summer day, and you're more even-tempered than a summer's day, right? So it's a bad idea to compare Melissa to the summer, because she's so much more appealing than a day in summer. Mm, It's beautiful. With the sense of the words now clear in his mind, I asked Jonathan to read the first four lines of the sonnet again, but this time with a special technique we use in rehearsal. I call it the paper trick. You got a piece of paper nearby? Yes. Cover up all of the poem except for the first line. Mm. Okay? So you can't see any of of it except for the first line. Mm -hmm. Okay? And you're not allowed to move the paper down until you get to the end of the first line. Then when you get to the end of the second line, move the paper down and reveal the next line and read that. One line at a time, okay? Mm-hmm. Try it again. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. 
Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. It's clearer, right? Hmm. Feel clearer to you? Did it feel clearer? I think maybe it did feel clearer in the saying of it. Imagine that all you're responsible for is just that one line. You're not Mm. responsible for the whole 14-line poem. Mm. Just the one thought. Jonathan and I worked through the whole poem in this way, and I did the same with Lorena, paraphrasing it, figuring out what it means. She and I also talked a little bit about the sonnet's peculiar rhyme scheme. So do me a favor, just tell me the words at the end of every line. Just make a list of the word at the end of every line. Minds, love, finds, remove, mark, shaken, Bark, taken, cheeks, come, weeks, doom, proved, loved. Perfect. So you can hear the rhyme. Minds, love, finds, remove. Love and remove don't exactly rhyme. They're called a near rhyme, but you get that they're meant to. Mark, shaken, bark, taken. Cheeks, come, weeks, doom. Proved, uh, I guess, louved, (laughs) right? No, we would say loved, right? Proved, loved. So there's the rhyme scheme that we were talking about, right? Wow. Okay? All right. (laughs) Okay. With material this complex, it's easy to get bogged down in technical stuff. You can talk about iambic pentameter and rhyme schemes and verse structure and antithesis and alliteration and all sorts of other literary details all day long. As interesting as all this is, what matters most is that Shakespeare writes people trying to express themselves. People who have thoughts and then choose language to communicate them. So I asked Lorena to imagine a real-life situation in which she herself might actually say the words of this sonnet. You've been to weddings, right? I presume you've been to many weddings. Yes, I was just at a wedding last weekend. Okay, so now in the church of Shakespeare's period and his many, many churches, there's a time in the wedding ceremony when the priest or minister or officiant will turn to the congregation and say, if anyone has any reason why this marriage should not take place, speak now or forever hold your peace, right? hmm So now you are at that wedding— And the priest says, if you've got a reason to object to this wedding, speak now or forever hold your peace. And you leap up and say, I'm not going to be an impediment. Okay? So imagine that the priest has just turned to the congregation and asked this question. And this first quatrain is your answer to that question. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. You're doing amazingly, amazingly, amazingly well. I asked you to imagine that you were in a dramatic situation. You're at a wedding. And now you have a reason to speak this language. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're just sitting around at home in your living room and you say, I want to read this poem now, let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediment, (laughs) right? It may be pretty, but you don't have any need to actually say it. So what I want to do is give you a need to speak so that this language becomes from inside of you because you're trying to get an idea out into the world. Got it. So what I'm trying to do here, Lorena, is... Activate your brain. I want to hear you think up this language as you go so that you're not reciting a poem that some guy wrote 400 years ago, but instead what you're doing is putting the language in your own brain 
and making your own brain come up with this language as you speak. Got it. Lorena and Jonathan were incredibly good sports as I put them through their Shakespearean paces. They worked hard to think their way through Shakespeare's language and to try all the tools and techniques I could throw at them. When our work session neared its end, I proposed that they give their poems one good go, our own little Where There's a Will podcast Shakespeare festival. We'll hear it after this break. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.
All right, Lorena, whole thing. You ready for it? Ready. How long do your actors get in rehearsal, Barry? (laughs) (laughs) They get a little more time than this. (laughs) It's wonderful. Lorena and Jonathan, citizens of San Diego, not professional actors, not trained Shakespeareans, found two of the most famous of Shakespeare's sonnets and spent an hour or so working on them with me so that through them they could express their feelings to people they care about. We put these poems into the microwave and pressed start. And now, presto, the Where There's a Will, Thinking Shakespeare Live sonnet extravaganza. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose words unknown, although his height be taken. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often in his gold complexion dimmed, and every fair from fair sometime declines, by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest, nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. That was fantastic, man. It felt funny in a good way. I have a huge smile on my face, Lorena. That was so great. Really? (laughs) That was so great. I'm so grateful to Lorena and Jonathan for jumping in so fearlessly and so bravely. I really loved my time with them, and I was so pleased by how far their hard work on these poems carried them. They really spoke this stuff beautifully, and they felt great about it, too. I just think it's wonderful to work on a piece and then try to just internalize it as your own and how it speaks to me and in my life and put some context in there as well. Some of the history and some of the rhyme schemes are always really helpful. It's like a heartbeat. It's There's, there's a rhythm to it. So it just makes it a little bit, puts it closer to me and my heart. I asked Jonathan if he felt that way too. Does it strike you that somehow, over the time that we worked on it, these thoughts became your own thoughts in your own head. More like it was your own organically arising language. Yes, in the way that a, a good, honest discussion feels, a good, honest sharing feels, uh, like you said, organic or, or a, a little electric. Like there's life in it. There's life in it. And this language from 400 years ago 
becomes transparent to your own experience. Yeah, like the the brain, the heart, and the the word maker are all connected. Isn't that amazing? It's nice. Not bad. Not bad, Will. <laughs> I know. He was pretty good. At the moment in Hamlet, when the prince discovers that his seemingly charming uncle is in fact a maniac who murdered his own brother, Hamlet's father, something kind of weird happens. On the heels of this most intense thing he's ever lived through, totally thunderstruck by what he's just learned, Hamlet whips a notebook out of his pocket and decides to write down what's on his mind. My tables, he says. He's referring to his table book, which is a sort of Elizabethan notepad. My tables... Meat, it is, I set it down, that one may smile and smile and be a villain. At least I am sure it may be so in Denmark. Audiences sometimes giggle at the odd sight of a man who's just met his father's ghost, taking the time to jot down the general life lesson he's learned in the process. But in Shakespeare's day, the behavior wouldn't have seemed the least bit peculiar. Readers back then, just like Hamlet, loved to take note of epigrams, memorable turns of phrase and other useful bits of knowledge that they encountered in their reading or in the course of their everyday lives. They collected these linguistic cuttings into scrapbooks called commonplace books. A commonplace was the term for any little adage or maxim that seemed to express some pearl of wisdom about some universal human situation. The English Renaissance, Shakespeare's period, was the heyday of commonplace books. They were regarded as essential to living a properly examined life, and they were so beloved that they became a literary genre all their own. Famous scholars and gentlemen published theirs to benefit the public. Many commonplace books from that period survive, and they share one notable feature. The author most frequently quoted, 79 times in one particular book, is none other than William Shakespeare. Even in his own day, Shakespeare was recognized as the leading author of language that renders in the most pithy and memorable way the immense size and scope and feeling and sweep of the human experience. When the stakes are as high as they ever get, the emotions as turbulent and the psychic strain as overwhelming, when we learn that our uncle murdered our father, say, no normal utterance, no everyday language can express our state. Times like those demand something of an entirely different magnitude. They demand the immensity and scale of Shakespeare. His is a sensibility at the human frontier. His, an imagination that holds fast the wildest intangibles. His, a language capable of expressing in finite terms those outsized, shapeless, jumbled storms that shake and roil a human heart under duress, and his, a literary skill set that can condense all this into a few lines. When we borrow Shakespeare to help us speak, when we unpack our heart with words, as he puts it, we somehow manage to not only meet the moment we're living through, but also to lift ourselves in the process. I think that's why there's Shakespeare everywhere. His language is so precise, his range so broad, that he's got something to offer all of us all the time. And his cultural currency is so alive, so widespread, that he's there for the taking by anyone, for any reason. 
It moves me to find him in all these places, in a baseball broadcast, at a funeral, on the campaign trail, at a family dinner, in an expression of love. Oh, and also, on Gilligan's Island. There's just one other thing you ought to do To thine own self be true Where There's a Will, Finding Shakespeare is written and hosted by me, Barry Edelstein. My co-host is M. Weinstein. Our show is produced by Buffy Gorilla and Nisha Venkut, with assistant producers Jennifer Sanchez and Salman Ahad Khan. Our executive producers are Catherine Girardot from Pushkin and Alex Lewis and John Myers from Rohome Productions. Our editor is Audrey Dilling. Our mix engineer is Justin Berger. Our theme is an original composition by Hannes Brown. Samia Bouzid is our fact checker. Vicky Merrick is our voice coach. Our show was recorded at Bill Corkery Productions, Leopard Studio, and The Old Globe. Where There's a Will is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and The Old Globe. Thanks to Pushkin's development team, Lital Mulad and Justine Lang. Barry Edelstein, that's me, is Erna Fincy Viterbi Artistic Director, and Timothy J. Shields is Audrey S. Geisel Managing Director of The Old Globe. For The Globe, thanks to sound director Paul Peterson and assistant to the sound director Evan Eason, director of marketing and communications Dave Henson, assistant to the artistic and managing directors Carolyn Budd. And thanks to 97.3 The Fan for the use of the Jesse Agler clip from Ben and Woods. Thanks to Grantham Coleman as Hamlet in this and other episodes of Where There's a Will. The Theodore and Audrey Geisel Fund provides leadership support for the Old Globe's year-round activities. To learn more about the Tony Award-winning The Old Globe, one of America's leading regional theater companies, visit theoldglobe.org. If you love this show, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus, offering bonus content and ad-free listening across our network for $4.99 a month. Find the Pushkin Plus channel on Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you.